I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by Bulwark. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 83. Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Good to be here. Don't know where else I would be on a Thursday morning, but good to be here. <laughs> this is the place we got to be, man. We got we to gotta keep the stories coming out to the people. Yes, we do. So the triumphant return I see in the show notes here of We Stand Corrected. We haven't been stand, stood corrected in quite a while. We need to be corrected more often. I'm sure we're wrong on many more things. Yeah, so in the last episode, I did the math wrong in my head, and it's really cool. So uh, Daniel Chambers, big shout out to you, Daniel, uh, caught that my math was a mistake. And I actually said that 77% of, um, of, of the reserves are unrecoverable. And actually, if you do the math, it's 94 to 87%. So it's even a bigger number than, than what I originally said. So, you know, thanks. Number one, that means he's really listening, right? Nobody else caught and said anything. But, but number two, it's like when we make a mistake, let us know. We want to we know. We don't, it's not that uh, when we're wrong, we want to learn as well. So, uh, you know, we, we stumble over something or we get something wrong, just shout out to us. And yeah. then you get a shout out. Yeah, definitely let us know. We always, like you said, we always want to grow. We always want to know more. Let's kick into the stories because we got a busy, busy day for both of us. So we usually kick it off in either China or Russia. And today we're going to kick it off in both China and Russia with a pretty, pretty, pretty strong report. QS Energy issues regional update China and Russia. Yeah, this is actually a really good report. If you want to understand globally what the oil um, countries, producing countries look like, right off the back, first thing they have a a beautiful graph and it shows you with a, a bar chart who's the biggest producers and it's naturally you know saudi arabia russia and the u.s and then china but it keeps going down and it names all the other countries that are that are producing and the the kind of cool thing about this is they t- kind of tell a backstory so they talked about how uh you know china up until just recently um used their energy internally they didn't export anything and then that's changed and it's changed because the chinese government has opened up uh, the free market in some regards to their um the hydrocarbon world. And so then they talk about Russia and how much uh, Russia is, how much oil and gas that Russia is sitting on and how they're basically in a battle with the Middle East to capture market share. So this is a great article. Um, and the interesting thing, James, is I have this uh, a Scotsman, his name's uh, uh, Rod McKenzie. that has been doing oil and gas business in Russia for 20 years. And every month uh, him, him and I get on a Skype call and we just kind of you know, shoot, the, shoot the, the bull about the industry. And it's interesting to hear from him what's going on in the Russian oil and gas market versus what we see in the media. And a lot of what we see in the media is wrong, you know. So it's um, it, you know, it's, it's always good to be able to see behind the curtain. And, and if you want to see what real numbers look like, look, check this article out. The real numbers are pretty staggering, <laughs> as far as because I, I I almost feel like we're beating a dead horse sometimes talking about China, China or Russia, but the amount of of recoverables recoverable reserves that are over in Russia are just out of control, out of control. Yeah. But, but what's going to happen, a lot of that is, is uh, uh, conventional reservoirs and those reservoirs are starting to hit the end of their life. And so if the sanctions aren't lifted and they can't get the new technology to tap into their unconventionals, you see their output start to decline. At the same time, you see the U.S. output go up. Um, I firmly expect the U.S. in in a very near future be the number one oil and gas producer in the world, passing Saudi Arabia. Wow. So, what about what about China? In because we don't have the same sanctions there, right? No, but China's China's handicapped by infrastructure. So they had a lot of reservoirs. They don't have roads to get to them, and they don't have pipe 
plans to move it out, the U.S. has the best oil and gas infrastructure on the planet. So that's, you know, once the price comes back and we start swinging back in production, and once the price of LNG comes back and we start e- exporting LNG, you're going to see us move up in rankings. And I firmly am convinced we're going to be number one. Well, we've got a lot to talk about with LNG in, in a future story, but let's move over to, this is, um, this is news to me, and it's, th- this is sort of a double dipping with this story. So exclusive, Maersk Oil eyes Shell's North Sea assets ahead of the spinoff. First of all, tell us about the spinoff, because like I said, this is really news to me. Yeah, so a lot of people are exiting the North Sea. You know, we just talked about um, conventional reserves, and, and when they hit end of life, um, um, that's what's going on in the North Sea right now. And so there's been a decline in production um, at the same time that the fracking boom has taken off in the U.S. Now, the thing that's keeping the North Sea going is they produce Brett crude, which is the European refineries love that. So there's still a need for that. But Shell is planning to exit the North Sea. Um, BP did it just recently. And Shell is uh, in talks with Maersk Oil uh, to see if they want to buy their, their North Sea assets. The good thing is um, Maersk will keep the operations running so the people that have jobs in North Sea will be able to keep their jobs. Um, and Maersk is also pretty convinced that it actually can do production and decommissioning cheaper than Shell could, which then uh, lowers the cost of them doing business in the North Sea, which is exactly what is needed right now because it's expensive to do business in the North Sea because of the environment. So um, this is this was to be expected. Um, you know, this is this is the, you know, as, when Shell bought uh, BG, um, there's going to be a bunch of their assets they're just going to get rid of. It's not going to be core to the new uh, global gas uh, monster of a company that Shell's going to become. Yeah. So you've got um, Shell pulling out of the North Sea. Yeah, that's sort of um, come to be expected. But the the real news um, that's interesting to me is the fact that Maersk announced on Thursday a major overhaul that will see its focus on its core transport and logistics businesses while looking at options for its energy division within 24 months that could include joint venture, merger, or listing. Yeah, so basically they're midstream part of the the business, right? Um, You midstream's making money, and it's um, it's not killing it like downstream is, but it's doing much much better upstream. And and midstream always does well. You know, whether it's a dollar a barrel, five hundred dollars a barrel, they generally charge the same amount to move that barrel. So um, this you know this makes sense as the dynamics change globally in the oil and gas industry. You're gonna see big companies change how they do business, and this is what they should do. And when when you say listing, they mean listing for sale. Listing what? Listing. It says a joint venture merger or listing. Is that for listing? Yeah, for listing. Sale? Listing would be putting up for sale. Yeah. So they would. So Maersk wants to unload that because what? Because they're focusing their core business, which is transport, which is midstream, right? So they have some. Uh, Maersk is, is uh, has upstream assets. Um, actually, Maersk has a nice office here in Houston, and so they're going to either see if they can trade that that upstream upstream assets if they want to. Somebody wants to go in a joint venture with it. Right, somebody wants to merge, or if they just go out right out and sell them. Interesting, interesting. And they've got a gas field, the Colson gas field, which is expected to start production in 2019 and could supply up to five percent of Britain's gas demand. So not, they're not going to get out of that, get out of it altogether. Maybe. No, no, no. They're just restructuring their portfolio. Yeah, focusing on what they're what they're best at, which we talk about plenty. And and what what's currently the best margins right now, in, in you know 2016 and the next 20 years. Right. So let me ask you this. What if they were to um, move out of that? It's not that it, it doesn't mean they they don't ever want to go back. Or how does that work when you restructure a business that large? It, the way it works is you have some very smart people that are saying, OK, we don't have unlimited resources. Where's the best use of our resource? Where's the best use of our cash and our people to make the money for the company? 
And if there's areas of the business that are not the best, we need to get rid of, right? Get away, stick to our core competencies. And in the future, if something changes and we now are good at something that we weren't good at before, or we can do something better, then we reinvest in it. You're seeing it with the super majors in the shale fields here in the U.S. They all came in too late, spent too much money. None of them knew how to make money at it except Exxon. And Exxon did what they always did. They just bought the best, which is XTO Energy. They all exited at a loss. And now they're coming back in, but they're coming back in leaner and understanding how to make money in the shale fields. So this is part of the dynamics of the industry. Got it. All right. I mentioned LNG and man, there's, there's so many staggering statistics in this one as well. Can India become an LNG juggernaut? It will become an LNG juggernaut. <laughs> There's um, no choice, right? It, 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 well, they have choices, but they're making the right choice for the environment and for the people of India is to move to LNG um, instead of coal, although they still use a good bit of coal to provide electrical energy for their people. You know, they're, um, they're the second largest population on earth and they're going to pass up China as far as people count. Um, they will be the largest population on earth and they have a huge, tremendous need for, for a lot of stuff, including energy, including just basic electricity. You go to um, you go to India now, and um, they have rolling blackouts. So even in the big cities, and it's not you don't know when it's going to happen. You'll have areas of the city just go without electricity for eight hours or two days, or whatever, before they get it back up. And it's not that something broke; they don't have enough electricity to, to supply the demand. And so, um, if you're a U.S. or European company and you're doing business in India and you have an office building, you run on your own generators because you can't trust the factory, the the power provided by the government. And India needs to change that as it moves its economy and its people out of being an agricultural-based company into um, the, the more modern world. And so they have an enormous need. They need to build all the infrastructure and not just electrical grid and distribution, but things like pipelines, um, regasification plants, storage. And they're doing it. And the cool thing right now, LNG is dirt cheap. I mean, it's, it's ridiculously cheap right now. And so India took advantage of that and bought a whole bunch of it. And then using that cost savings to fund the infrastructure project. So um, you will see India become the juggernaut of, of LNG. And, and, and China will be, be awfully close as well. Yeah. Well, you speak of rolling blackouts. One of the numbers and sentences that jumped out at me is that an estimated 280 million people in India do not have access to reliable sources of electricity. That is so many people. You think of 2016, 280 million people not having access to electricity in in a country that we normally think of as is fairly developed. Yeah, and it, it it parts of it are developed, but but you know, this is the whole emerging economy. So it's you know, it's it's Russia, it's China, it's India, it's Vietnam. You know, all these people right now um, live an agricultural lifestyle. They're farmers, they grow their own food, but their kids will live in cities and need things like Tupperware and laptops. And it's coming in order to fund that, in order to make that happen, they need to increase the, the amount and the reliability of, of their electrical systems. And, and they're doing it, right? And they're doing it in a very environmentally responsible way. You, you talked about them renegotiating some contracts. That was another one of the things that jumped out of me. 40 to 50 million tons reckoned to be homeless by 2020. Um, can you tell us about homeless LNG? So that's LNG that's on the market. So think of it sitting in an LNG tanker and nobody bought it. Yeah. It's homeless. There's just a massive glut of that. And so and so they were kind of in the buyer's market, if you will. Oh, by far. And so if you're a, if you're that owner of that that ta- uh, super tanker LNG, what a lot of people don't know, it's not sealed. That LNG evaporates. So if you start out with X amount. I, I did not realize that. Yeah. X amount. As time goes on, it, it, you have less and less. In a low price market, when, when you don't have contracts, that's not a good place to be. So what you do to cut your losses, you sell it for literally pennies on the dollar just to cut your losses. 
And so that makes it real advantageous for the countries out there that want to buy LNG. And that's what's going on right now. That will change. LNG will come back. Uh, we're, we're looking at the end of 2017, beginning of 2018, we think that the price will come back. Um, but right now, it's a buyer's market. It is absolutely a buyer's market. I, I clicked actually clicked through on the 40 to 50 million tons, and it talked about um, Japan as well. It's just totally taking these guys to the bank because they can. So you might as well if you can. Um, yep. Let's move over to Argentina. It's actually a country I don't believe we've covered before, and that's why I threw India in there too because we've mentioned India, but that was the first in-depth look. So let's take an in-depth look, look at Argentina. Argentina looks to tap into vast resource, reserves of resources and energy potential. Yeah, so Argentina is one of the countries that have the same shale geology we have. And so um, Chevron's been out there for years helping them uh, develop the, the shale and the uh, hydraulic fracking out there. The problem is, and they have the huge reserves out there, and, and it's not just us in Argentina. The whole world has this geology. It's just they don't know how to get it out the ground like we do. Um, the problem in Argentina is twofold. First, it was the prior government, which basically subsidized energy for the people. So the people basically got electricity and gasoline for free or almost free, which was not the free market, which means that other com companies couldn't come in and invest with their knowledge and their uh, capital in Argentina and make a profit. So there was no reason to, which means that the, the growth of that of the petroleum injury was stunted artificially by the government. That has since changed, which is good. The other big thing, we talked about this in India and in China, they don't have the infrastructure and, and it's just miles and miles and miles of nothing. So you got to build roads, you got to bring electricity in, you got to get pipelines built. So um, all that's going on, um, Argentina will be uh, the next unconventional um, producer of oil and gas a, at a major scale. Um, and it's going to benefit the people. It's, it's, Argentina is, is um, pretty much a, a poor country, agriculturally based company. Uh, country and this is a good fundamentally change um the prosperity for the people of Argentina because now you have jobs now you have abundant electricity abundant natural gas i mean you'll be able to export this stuff and so this is all good stuff it's just gonna be a little while before it all uh, comes to bear a little while i mean right here it says an analyst francisco mizadri um reckons it will take until 2030 to restore argentina's power generating capacity that is, um, that, that's, that's quite a stretch right there. I mean, you know, yeah, 14 years yeah. away. Yeah. And, and, but once again, you know, it, it will happen. They will pull out of this. Um, and I, I think it's just, I don't, I've actually been to Argentina. That's where I picked up my uh, love for uh, Malbec wine. And I just, uh, great, <laughs> I did great, not know that. Yeah. Great people. Um, lo lovely people. They love Americans, uh, great food over there. So this is all good stuff for them. Yeah. And if you want to get in, in Mark's good graces, send him a bottle of Malbec. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. One day I'm going to do a show. Um, I, I do this as a joke, but when I help people out, usually in the end of the, the email, I'll say, hey, if y'all end up doing business together, send me a bottle of Malbec. And I drink two bottles a week. And James, I must have 45 bottles of Malbec <laughs> because people send, I don't mean, I don't want them to send, but they do it anyway. And it's, it's you know, it's it's a, a nice, inexpensive way to say thank you when I help somebody out. So I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. And it helps you out too, because you don't have to buy a Malbec. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mind buying it, brother. Let me tell you. <laughs> All right. So let's move over to the domestic side of things. If you liked Anadarko Petroleum before, you'll love it now. I don't think we've talked too much about Anadarko lately. So what's going on with them? I love Anadarko. I, they, they're just such a cool little company. Um, and Anadarko is the largest independent operator in the world. Um, so Anadarko um, has run their business well in the slow crude price market. And they recently refinanced some of its debt. Um, and that's putting them in a very good financial um, um, position. 
um, which is going to allow them to just surge ahead when this uh, crude price starts to creep back up. So, um, you know, good company run by good people using sound financial judgment, good business practice um, to, to stay alive and keep their people working in this low crude price market and set themselves up for future success when the price pops back. So what was their debt restructuring like? So um, they, they sold $3 billion worth of bonds and then used that money to refinance the debt, the debt that was going to mature in 2016 and 2017. So um, um, they had like close to $4 billion of debt that was going to mature and they dropped that down to $1 billion. So they went from $4 billion of debt to $1 billion. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I need that refinancing right there. <laughs> that's, that's good well, stuff. Well, yeah, but but they sold $3 billion for the bonds to make that money. So you would need to be able to sell bonds to make the money to refinance your debt. Yeah, I don't have any bonds on the market. <laughs> yeah. They also picked up some assets over in the Gulf of Mexico from Free, uh, Freeport McMoran. McMoran, yeah. Yeah, that's once again, here's Freeport hurting for money, and here's Anadarko who has money picking up uh, great uh, assets in the Gulf of Mexico for pennies on the dollar. There's a lot of that going on right now. Chevron's been doing a lot of it as well. And so when they're acquiring these assets, they're, they're, is it kind of like acquiring leases? Just yeah, you're, it's the you're, same thing. you're going to hold on to them until it makes sense to drill? The, the only difference is the leases in the Gulf of Mexico belong to the federal government, not to people. So that money goes to our government. And, and some of it goes to the states that are, if they're close enough to wherever the leases are. But yeah, it's the same thing. It's just like when you buy mineral rights on land. Got it. Got it. All right, this is um pretty pretty big move over here by Trans uh, Transocean. Um, so let's talk about it. Mothballing the world's fanciest oil rigs is a massive gamble. Yeah, y'all need to check this out to understand what the 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 drilling contractors are going through now. The first thing is the graphic. It's on the very top of the page. You can see in January of '08, um, the day rates were about for deep water drill ships were about uh, you know three hundred eighty thousand dollars a day. In June of 13, it peaked at $550,000 a day. Now it's down to less than $200,000 a day. Um, and that's, that's for an average rig. The deep water guys were up to a million dollars a day at, at their peak. So what's happened is Transocean has a bunch of modern drill rigs and they've parked them. Now you go, well, that just makes sense. Nobody's renting them out. You go stick them somewhere so you, don't, so you don't waste money. The problem is these things aren't designed to be shut off. They've never been shut off, right? So you, um, you um you you can do what something called warm stacking, which is ha typically how they take care of this. That means they park them somewhere, they have a skeleton crew, just enough people to keep it running, but they keep it running, and then they wait till the next time that they get um they win a contract, and then they they're able to ramp this thing back up, move it wherever it needs to be, where it'll start drilling. Now uh, Transocean has cold stacked these, which means they've parked them and they've cut them off, and they've never been cut off before. It's sort of like if you would buy. Um, a Ferrari, right, or a Lamborghini. They're not designed to sit in your garage for years and years, right? It's the same as one of these drill rigs. So it, it, they're, um, Transocean's doing, uh, taking a chance. Now it's saving them, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, which is saving jobs and saving the company. But when the price comes back and there's a need for these modern drill ships, it's going to be interesting to see what they have to go through because unlike the Ferrari, which if it doesn't start or has a flat tire or whatever, you can fix that. The, the drill ship can't fail when it's in, in when it's working. Um, so let's stay on top of the story. It's be interesting to see how if this was a super smart move by by Transocean or if it's something that'll come back and bite them in the butt later. Well, what's really interesting to me is the fact that when I hear about stacking a rig, I would just my layman brain would think, okay, that doesn't cost any money now. 
But warm stacking costs $40,000 a day. And even when you cut the engines off, it's still $15,000 a day. Yeah. That's, uh, but that's because crazy. You, well, you have to park them somewhere, right? And and they have to be um, maintained somewhat. They have to be kept painted and the corrosion resistance and you know, all that stuff. So, yeah, there's still a cost to it. And they've also got Rolls Royce thrusters in there. <laughs> I'm, you know me, I'm a Rolls fan. Yeah, <laughs> Rolls, Rolls, is, Rolls is heavy in the oil and gas industry. Also, with a lot of, they do a lot of generators and a lot of turbines too. Yeah, the thrusters are what, when they don't actually anchor the rig, the thrusters are what allows it to stay still over the drill site, even though it's not cabled to anything, so they can drill. It's actually, it's actually really cool that it even works at all. You know, they're, you know, sometimes 10,000 feet of water, you know, 8,000 feet of water, drilling through maybe another five or 10,000 feet of rock and they're doing it and the drill ship is is not cabled it's not anchored it's using thrusters to stay exactly where it needs to stay 24/7 you know 2 or 3 years 4 years at a time i i've always wondered how that worked <laughs> so good on rolls royce for providing that infrastructure yeah and there's there's several ways to do it if the water's shallow enough they'll use a jack up um, they can also build uh, you know they'll use a spar rig which is uh, semi submersible and they'll have uh, uh, anchors there's several ways to do it but modern Deep water drill ships are able to stay exactly where they need using GPS and computer controlled thrusters without need to have any cables going to the ocean floor. So at this point, if you're if you're in charge of Transocean, are you just kind of doing this and crossing your fingers, hoping that things rebound quickly? Oh, you yeah, you're hoping things rebound quickly, but that this world's could change them. So um, this was at its peak. This was unbelievably profitable. I mean, just crazy amount of, of margins they were making on this, and that world's not going to return. Um, there's still going to be a need for what they do, but the margins are going to be much, much, much lower because we're in this hydrocarbon abundant world. Things like deep water and ultra deep water um, aren't cheap oil. And so there's not going to be a big need for that stuff. Got it. All right. Let's talk a little peak oil <laughs> while we're at it. Um, what Hubbard got wrong about peak oil? And this is actually not written by an anti-peak oil person, but it, I don't know. I just wanted to get your take on things. So let's, let's talk about it. Yeah, this is a good article. If you've been in this industry for a while, or if you've just been on this planet for a while, you, there's a shell geologist in the 70s um, wrote a, a um, it wasn't a book, it was, it was actually a scientific study. He basically predicted peak oil, and I think he said it was going to be in the 70s. That it was going to be 70, these. yeah, 1970. Yeah, and then after that, globally, it was going to decline year over year. And that's what started this mentality of people thinking that we're going to run out of oil. Um, because now, the way people think of oil in the, in the world is that it's like it's in this big bucket. So every time you take something out, there's less and less, and eventually it'll disappear. That's not how you need to think about it. There is no bucket. There's no bucket, right? You don't think that way about iron, right? You don't worry about us running out of iron to make steel. We're not going to run out of oil. And the reason he was wrong is he couldn't predict the technologies that were going to come along and unlock more and more oil. And there's going to be future technologies come along and unlock more and more. Um, you know, he, he, he was doing his best to follow proper scientific method when he did this. Um, he just didn't know what the future was going to bring. So, um, you know, unfortunately for all the people that love the idea of, of peak oil, it's wrong. It didn't happen. It's not going to happen. Yeah, and I can remember watching Nat Geo things about peak oil as late as 2003-2005-ish, right? Um, there were entire documentaries made about this, this whole um, this whole idea that, you know, Saudi Arabia has the largest pool and we don't have any pools anymore. So we're done. Yeah. And it's, it's just basics and not understanding the science of, of where it is, how we find it and how we extract it. 
Uh, once you understand how that works, you know, we've talked about this a million times before, but nobody, nobody has went out and looked to see where all the oil is in the world. It doesn't make fiscal sense. Uh, doing that geoscience and that 3D seismic stuff is expensive. So the, the operators out there just go find what they need in the next couple of years. They're not looking to find oil 10, 20, 30, 40 years now. And then a lot of places in the world where the oil, the uh, reservoirs um, were, were depleted, or, or I should say they, they couldn't get oil out of the ground commercially more, with modern um, stimulation techniques, we can go back to those cap wells and produce for another 20 or 30 years. And that's just going to continue as we go through time. So, um, you know, Hubbard was, was trying to do a really good job. He got it wrong, right? And um, there's actually still people out there that are still, like you said, talking about Pico on. It's like, it's just, it's not, not real. It's not reality. So while, while we've been talking about this um, and some of the earlier stories, it's just got me thinking because you, you, were, you were mentioning before about, you know, the North Sea uh, or especially in, um, in places like Russia and so forth that um, in order to exploit, you need to go from conventional to unconventional. Um, at what point, I mean, oil would have to be silly expensive to do um, offshore, deep sea, unconventional, wouldn't it? Um, so are you asking me, can you frack offshore? I, well, I know, I, I assume you can frack offshore. I guess it wouldn't oil have to be at some high number to make sense of that? No. So Halliburton's already um, done a proof of concept. They've already fracked offshore and they uh, well was able to go back in production. It depends where it is. So if you're in the, in the shelf in the Gulf of Mexico where the water's shallow, it would not be expensive at all. At all. Places like the North Sea would be expensive. Any places, deep water, ultra deep water would be expensive, but that's expensive today in 2016. Um, with advances in robotics and big data analytics, James, it may be somewhere in the future, maybe somewhere in the near future, that a bunch of robots go down there and do all that work for us. At that point, it won't be expensive, right? They, they'll build the subsea pipelines and everything, bring it back to shore. Not a human, not a single human involved, <laughs> right? That, that's you know, that sounds science fictionist, but some of the stuff I'm seeing going on, that seems very real to me. Somewhere in the future. Yeah, well, and welcome our our new robot overlords. They're taking over. <laughs> They're taking over, um, and it, it, this is an, another interesting story um, on the on the offshore front because um, you know we talk a lot about rig builders and all kinds of people being hurting, and so it's sort of an interesting cross sell of 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 their um, of their ability within a company. A mighty wind tries to lift rig builders past oil's downturn. Yeah, this is a great oracle, and you don't know this. I have a client that we figured the same thing out for them a couple years ago. No, I didn't know. Uh, that. Yeah. So um, this is a story about Gulf Island Fabrication, who forever has built uh, oil platforms, and their business is dying right now. And so they switched around, and they start building uh, turbine foundations for the offshore uh, wind farm, uh, and this is specifically what all the turbines they built out in Rhode Island. So, you know, here's, we've talked about this before, if you're in this industry and things are hurting, think outside the box. Look at other parts of the industry, or in this case, look outside your industry. What you do I promise you there's a need for it somewhere. You just have to figure out where it is. So here's a company that went from hurting really bad because they built offshore platform. The work, because they're in such high demand, building almost the identical type of platform. I mean, it's not identical because it's not an oil well, but it's the same engineering, the same project management, the same construction procurement stuff to build the platforms for the wind terminals offshore. So, you know, hats off to Gulf for thinking outside the box and, and saving their company, and keeping their people employed. And they're actually produce, helping produce wind energy, which is ridiculously clean for the environment. So I just, you know, I just think it's a cool story. It is a cool story. And like you said about thinking outside the box, you remember, remember that, that, that team that we met? I don't even remember what show it was. I know it was at the George R. Brown. They, they went from doing what they were doing in the oil field and they said, hey, we've got all these machines here. Let's, uh, let's make guns. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't remember who that was. Yeah, they were a machine shop that specialized in doing precision work in the industry. And they go, you know what? We can make guns. So they did. So, I, you know, that's another cool story. I had I had a client that uh, uh, ran ROV, so the, the, the remote operating vehicles used in subsea. And when all their business dried up because there wasn't a need for it, they were about to go belly up. And they found me and I went and did some research for them. And I said, you need to go work in the offshore wind farms. And they're blowing and going because there's the same need for ROVs um, as is in oil and gas. The work's a little bit different, but the need is there. Yeah, definitely. So I, I don't know, just a bright story for everybody out there and especially business owners. If you're if you're just kind of crossing your fingers and, and hoping for the best, there's there's other there's other strategies that you can employ. Yeah, it's um I've I've had a lot of clients in this downturn, not clients, I've had a lot of prospects, I should say, in this downturn reach out to me. And it's a cultural thing. They just they don't think of looking outside the box. They've always done businesses. And if once you suggest it to them and show them how it can happen, like their eyes light, like I never even thought about that. So yeah, if, if you're hurting out there, if you're a service company or you know, an offshore operator or something, think about what your core competency is, right? Is it engineering? Is it construction? See where else there's a demand for that stuff. Yeah, definitely. All right. I'm geeking out on this one, Mark. You said it was interesting to put in here, but it, it's pretty cool from a ge ge geological perspective. Good vibrations. University of Utah geologists record how Rainbow Bridge resonates. Yeah. So this is, um, this is a very interesting story. You know, the, the, the rock nerds are a great group of guys out there. And so these uh, scientists have figured out, that, and this is a formation in, is it Utah, I believe. Yep. It's, it's, it's basically an arch. If you, if you don't go to the article and see it's a big arch. And they figured out that it actually vibrates sort of like a, a guitar string. Um, and it, it vibrates from the energy, the seismic energy created by water, the waves of water um, on the shores of nearby Lake Powell. <laughs> and so it's, it's just really cool. They figured this thing out and they're actually using it to study earthquakes because what they figured out is the, the, um, the, res the way it resonates changes depending on what's going on in the fault lines. And so this would be really cool if, them doing this work and they figure out number one that they can uh, um, use it to predict earthquakes or at least understand what's going on but number two safety right so this is one of those natural uh, formations that at some point and maybe not in our lifetime maybe not in humans lifetime, at some point it'll, it will fail it will fall down because um, the wind and the sand is gradually eroded away would it be cool if they can uh, predict whether it's safe or not safe just by the residents that they're they're picking up off of yeah that would be really cool especially if you're a camper out there visiting the arch yeah and another thing, the reason I brought this out is because a point that, that we can't stress enough is, you know, we're always bashed in the oil industry as being, you know, anti-environment and everything. Geoscientists are some of the most environmentally conscious people that you could meet. Yeah, and, and, and for anybody listening that doesn't know this industry, the oil and gas industry is the most environmentally conscious industry I know. Everybody in this industry gets measured how they and how their operations affect the environment. We record spills literally as small as a drop of oil, right? We don't want bad things to happen. And then if they do, we clean it up. I was talking to somebody just recently. He was talking about the Gulf of Mexico disaster with the BP Macondo, and I had to stop him and go, it's gone. He goes, yeah. what? I go, we cleaned it up. It's gone. He goes, you couldn't clean it up. I go, I'm telling you, it's gone. You can't detect oil anywhere except where it naturally seeps in the Gulf of Mexico. And so he just could not believe that we cleaned it up. It's like, yeah, we, when, when something like that happens, we fess up. Right. We, we, we put our big boy boots on and we go clean it up. Yeah. And that was that was another lesson learned for me last year when we were at the API meeting. And I'm and I had talked to your to your friend who does remediation and learned that there's an entire industry within our industry called remediation for exactly that. 
Yeah, and, and they have a bunch of tools at their disposal um, to, to get to clean the environment and put it back like it was. And, and quite honestly, when there is an accident like that, when they're finished, the environment's actually better than it was before. Yeah, yeah, a lot of the time. All right, let's move on. We've got our weekly onion. I can't say the full title, Relaxing Tea, Better Effing Work. So go check that out in the show notes. And who is the person that gets to relax in the Bulwark two-tone base layer? Congratulations, Joshua Wade, Director of Crude Oil Supply at Ascent Midstream Partners. So Joshua, you've won the Bulwark two-tone base layer, and I've said this before and I'll say it again. It has become the fashion accessory in the oil and gas industry. Your coworkers are going to be jealous. Um, um, Bulwark's a great company, the largest FR provider in the world. So if you and your people need FR clothing, go check them out. Definitely go check them out. You can register to win that at bulwark.com forward slash podcast, B-U-L-W-A-R-K.com forward slash podcast. And a quick shout out for Ascent Midstream Partners. They're a standalone operating company, uh, previously known as American Energy Appalachian Holdings. And it was the um, it, it was a combination of American Energy Utica and American Energy Marcellus. And so they work up in the Marcellus Shale. And so big shout out to everybody in the Marcellus if you're out there listening. Yeah, and if you're out there, you probably want one of these two-tone bass layers so, <laughs> oh, so you, you can go. be really cool like Joshua Wade is. So go go register and see if you can win one. Pow! <laughs> that's hilarious. All right, events on deck. Get Mo- Mark's monthly email. That's where we we pull everything for these uh, for these stories or for is for these events, and that's at triberocket.com forward slash events where you can get Mark's monthly email. Um, we have King and Spalding Latin American Energy Forum coming up on September 29th here in Houston. Tell us about it, Mark. So, and if we've talked about this in previous shows, I apologize because something makes me think maybe we did. But if I, we I feel like we did, but it's okay. We can cover it. Yeah, if we didn't, this is this is a really good. I'm gonna be there. It's a really good one day event talking about what's going on in the in the uh, energy world in Latin America, and that's a place where there's all there's a growing demand and a growing supply. So you need to keep your eye on what's going on. So if you go, hit me up on Twitter. I'd love to connect in person. Yeah, oh, and a, it's free, by the way. Yeah, it's free. That it, We did talk about it because that's the one yeah. that you uh, asked for a press pass, and she said it's free. Um, also coming up, the API uh, Young Professionals has a Phillips 66 tour, which is, um, gosh, that's cool. Yeah, that's September, September 29th, right around the corner. They're only taking 30 people. Um, you'll have to go to go to the show notes and click the link to register. If it's not full yet, better you better hurry up and go do it. This is nobody gets to go tour Philip sixty six. Are you kidding me? This is another once in a lifetime event, just like the rig tour. So go go sign up. Yeah, go sign up. And also, I did put that pretty link together for it. So it's triberocket.com forward slash sixty six. So if you're um, if you're driving and don't remember to go to the show notes, which you should. Um, go to triprocket.com forward slash 66 and sign up. All right. And then Oilcom um, is coming up. I, I don't believe we discussed this one yet. Yes. So this is one we haven't discussed yet. So uh, we will all be there. The whole podcast family is going to be there and we're going to be recording podcasts from Oilcom. This is a great conference. It's a smaller conference in the George R. Brown. Um, this one's actually, they've done a really, what I think was a heart touching thing for me. For anybody that works in the oil and gas industry this year, they're going to let you in free. Usually you have to pay for it. Right, they're doing their part to give back, and this is all about the communications, hardware processing, um, big data, uh, wearables, HS and E, all that sort of stuff in oil and gas, all in one place. Like I said, we'll be there. Uh, James will be there. Um, um, Patrick Pister will be there. We, we, we'll all be there. So if you come to this one, hit us up on Twitter. We'd love to talk to you. Yeah, and if you want to shoot some guns, they have a clay tournament as well. So yeah, the, uh, the, yeah, the, yeah, they do the day before the eleventh. The day before, so um, so you can check all of that out. And um, again, that's at the uh, George R. Brown Secure, Robust, and Reliable Enterprise Communications 
um, probably a lot of opportunities for 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 savings in that area in just making things more efficient because um, you know we could always make things more efficient in this industry. Yeah, I um I I actually interviewed one of their people and it's, it's sitting on my blog now, but that's one of the things that he brought up is that. In this low crew price environment, by um, making sure you understand how your equipment and your people communicate, you can actually save a lot of money and do it in a way that increases safety metrics. Um, now there's stuff out there that men wear out in the rig, and if they fall down, even nobody sees them, it knows they're not moving. It knows they fell down. It sends an alert. It says, you know, we have a man down. Or the same way if they fall overboard, you know, man man overboard. I just think that's cool. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, we, we need all of the safety we can get. All right, the first Friday Q&A is, gosh, it seems like we just did one. It's only a couple of weeks away. So um, tell us about the first Friday Q&A. Yeah, this has become our most popular segment. It's uh, anything you want to know about the oil and gas industry and also anything you want to know about marketing. We keep talking about the oil and gas industry, but if you want to know, you know, if, if you want to know how to market the oil and gas industry, you know, let us know. And James, of course, will answer those questions, not me. <laughs> but, um, you know, reach out to us if you want to score extra brownie points, record an audio note and uh, text and email it to James. Um, but the questions keep getting better and better, and um, it's it's really it's actually I look forward to doing. It. It's actually fun. Yeah, it's a good time. And so trybrocket dot com forward slash QA. You can just write in that way. And then we did get a review, Mark. We got one finally. Finally, yeah, we had one week off. So hopefully we have a banner week this week. Maybe five or six of y'all come come in and help us with some more reviews. But um, trybrocket dot com forward slash TW reviews takes you in there. This week's review, amazing podcast, five stars, the Oracle of OKC. I love it. <laughs> I love <laughs> I love it. it. Incredible podcast. I love the news updates, and I love the message of energy liberty that these guys are working towards. Yes, liberty. <laughs> liberty. I love it. All right. Um, LinkedIn group continues to grow. I, I saw we did cross 1,500. We'll be at 2,000 before we know it. Yeah. So if, uh, if you listen to the show, if you like the show, join the LinkedIn group. It's where we announce all the special stuff first. Because that's our family, right? Um, James helps people. I help people. The members help each other. Um, you know, take a couple minutes. It, it it is the most valuable LinkedIn group on there. It is definitely trybrocket.com forward slash LinkedIn, and you can check out the tr- the show notes with all of the stories and everything we talked about at trybrocket.com forward slash tw83. Yeah, if you're uh, if you're listening to this, go check out the show notes. James puts a lot of work to make it easy for you to see all this stuff in one place. There's a bunch of clickable links, um, our, our contact information in there, and we've actually had more people start going to the show notes to find our contact information, which then means my inbox is filling up, so that might have to change. <laughs> but but you know, if if you want to go go to the show notes, it makes it really easy for you to see everything we talk about in this show. Yeah, but we 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 want more inbox full because because they may be reaching out to us for speaking engagements. Oh yeah. Speaking of that, if if you um, if you like James and I love to get on the road. If you're an organization, if you're a school, if you're a trade show, if um, you know your company and you have a dedicated um, approach to oil and gas sales or marketing, uh, you know if if you have a, a wine club, <laughs> whatever, um, let us know. We would love to come out and talk, and uh, we'd be happy to share details with you. Yeah, and if you want to share the show, you can do it at tribrocket.com forward slash share li. Go to LinkedIn, tribrocket.com forward slash share tw for Twitter and forward slash share fb for Facebook. We've both got places to be. Are you ready to go, Mark? Yeah, folks. So do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease, guys.
Microphone check of one, two. What is this? The five foot assassin. <laughs>